Thursday, September 25th, 2008. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. Today we have with us Bard Ermentrout, who is the University Professor of Computational Biology and Professor in the Department of Mathematics at the University of Pittsburgh. Thanks, Bard, for being here. Uh, around the room we have Carlos Palladini. Hello. Charlie Wilson. Hi. Todd Troyer. Good afternoon. Jim Bauer. Hello. And Fidel Santa Maria. Hola. Thanks for being here, everyone. So, um, Bard, some of your first uh, work as a mathematical biologist was on mescaline-induced visual hallucinations. So, um, so tell me, where do you, uh, where does the applied math fit into that? Uh. <laughs> but, but, but all kidding aside, I mean, these are these are classic. It's a classic theory now that I think well, we should the, do some the, other the, time. The, um, it all it all started. There was a guy at University of Chicago, Heinrich Kluver. Um, who wrote a book called Mescal and the Mechanisms of Hallucination. And he, um, in the appendix of that book, he had a little section called Form Constants. And he talked about the kinds of patterns that everybody seemed to report across all cultures. It didn't matter whether you were, you know, it wasn't like giant screaming purple Elvises that would be very culturally informed. Um, <laughs> But, it, you know, these are very simple geometric patterns. And what uh, my advisor, Jack Cowan, and I recognized is if you took these patterns and you map them into cortical coordinates from the retinal coordinates because you were perceiving, say, a spiral or something, how is that mapped back onto the cortex, visual cortex? And these things became very simple geometric um, patterns like hexagons and stripes of various orientations. And back in the, this is in the late 70s, pattern formation was all the rage in, in, uh, in biology. And among them was, um, you know, all these work on fluid mechanics and, and symmetry breaking instabilities. And we figured we had everything we needed in um, layer, you know, in V1 cortex to, to do exactly that. We had the sort of, so-called uh, Mexican hat or lateral inhibition, and lateral inhibition is enough to cause instabilities that give rise to exactly these spatially periodic patterns. So that was where the math was. Is We made some very simplifying assumptions about homogeneity and isotropy in the cortex, and this has been changed now. There's people that have built on this idea, including things like orientation and things like that, but but it's a very simple idea, and and because it's simple, it's very robust. I mean, it's it's um, you don't have to you make very few assumptions to get this kind of thing. Todd, so so are there specific things about the way these patterns happen in the cortex that are uh, not general? Is there are there anything specific about these cortical patterns that are that's interesting that tells us the rest about biology, or are they just generic well, vanilla I, things? Well, no, I think it's telling you something about the connectivity. And I mean, I could I, I could speculate beyond that to say that that you know, as uh, there, there, there's a there's kind of interesting evidence. There's some recent work by a guy named um, uh, Dominic Feitch, um, FF. Y T C H E, um, who's done some MRI um, or imaging um, on people who are looking at flicker patterns. Okay, because another way you, you don't have to do hallucinogens to get these patterns. You can also um, um, look at strobe 
strobe lights, and at certain frequencies, your visual field will break up into things. But you can get more complex patterns, too. And I think he's actually looked at people that are hallucinating as well, but the point is that as these um, hallucinations change their form, um, like people that that are um, not, not the flicker hallucinations, but more complicated hallucinations, like face hallucinations, the different parts of the cortex light up. So what, I'm, what, what I would speculate is that what's happening is that what these patterns are revealing is something about the intrinsic connectivity of, of cortical networks because you're sort of, because um, really it is all in, if, if you know any matrix, eigen, matrix analysis, the eigenvalues and the eigenvectors of matrices are basically um, telling you a whole lot about the structure of the entries in the matrix. So if you think very simplistically of connections between neurons as being entries in this matrix, then what, what hallucinations are essentially the eigenmodes of this. And there's, there's, um, there's some interesting experimental evidence on spontaneous activity that's been imaged in cat visual cortex um, that's very similar to the evoked activity that you see, um, but it's happening spontaneously, and it's probably a consequence of just the intrinsic connectivity. So that's what I think this is really showing you. Tim? So as I remember this work, one of the interesting things about it was reflecting back on art from the Southwest. Oh, and cave paintings, yeah, yeah. or, or, or um, this is the relationship between the Mexican hat and the Mexical. Or the, <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Go ahead. No, no, I mean, it, <laughs> there, there, there's actually some anthropologists, um, Lewis Williams and Hodges, uh, Hodges or Hedges, um, a bunch of these guys that have studied um, like Son Bushman art and modern um, art from primitive, like the Koso tribes and, and um, tribes in South Africa and Aboriginal art and suggest that these patterns that they see painted on walls, because they can't ask, they can't ask the old Paleolithic guys what they were thinking. Uh, they've, they've been dead for a while. So uh, they, the best they can do is ask other people to make these kind of paintings. And a lot of these guys, a lot of the guys that do the paintings are shamans. And so they've been doing their, you know, chewing their, their um, what is it, Amanita muscaria or whatever else they eat, and and chanting, and you get the flickering light and the repetitive uh, activity, and then they go up there and paint these things. So these guys think a lot of this is reflecting, again, uh, you know, intrinsic activity of the brain. Um, kind of an interesting theory it's, uh, that, that I always thought was kind of cool. It, it came after our stuff. But um, Are, are any, of these, uh, any of these states that you get these, uh, say, these flicker-induced states that they relate to the common frequency modes and stuff? Oh, yeah, 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 exactly. Because um, it turns out that the, the best... And, 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 the best mode to induce flicker patterns is around um, 18 to 20 hertz. All right. Now, if if you, I, I think of this as a, I think I think flicker induced patterns. This is only a theory, but I think it's an example of what's called parametric resonance, which means okay, um, have you, everybody here has probably been on a swing, right? And you swing your legs back and forth, right? And it turns out that, you know, there's certain frequencies that that swing likes. 
And it turns out that in, in, in the models that we think about, the, the, the frequency that they like is roughly, the, the frequency that most excites them is roughly twice what the intrinsic frequencies are. So if you have things like with 100 millisecond time constants, and there's tons of those in, in Cortex, uh, you know, you got your, um, AH, some of your AHP currents and stuff like that, um, that, that this 20 hertz is resonating with that um, essentially intrinsic 10 hertz, 8 to 10 hertz rhythm. And that that's what gives rise to these patterns. I mean, that, that's speculation and that's what uh, that's what got I've gotten renewed interest in this because I have a couple of undergraduates that are doing simulations of these sorts of things where they're driving um, the Wilson Cowan equations with periodic stimuli and and finding they break up into these patterns at certain frequencies. Does this have any relations with Nyquist? No, I don't think it's Nyquist, but it does have a big relationship with a Pokemon phenomena. Um the what? The yeah. Pokemon phenomena. You know this story in in, um, in Japan where there's an episode of Pokemon and hundreds of kids went into seizures because there was this episode of Pokemon mm-hmm. that uh, and there was this device I got. I, I I used to bring it to Woods Hole, the LSD flight simulator. It's a little purple purple thing you blow into and you close your eyes and you stare up at the sun and it flickers and you get all these patterns but they stop selling it and there's a warning in there that may cause seizures and it turns out that that 20 hertz is also really really good for seizures which is why in europe um photic epilepsy is much more common than it is in the u.s because they have 50 hertz televisions which is really 25 hertz that's interlaced and that's much closer to that, and so you get a lot more photic epilepsy in Europe than you do in the U.S. So, so why isn't it related to sampling frequency? Because somewhere running around this also is uh, is oh. um, is frame rate stuff uh, in uh, visual or in yeah. What uh, is movies. the what, what is does anybody know what flicker fusion is? It's around thirty hertz, isn't yes, it? That's right. Yeah, so it could be. It could. I, I don't know. It could be that. So what is it about the visual system that actually would, I mean, why would the visual system naturally want, worry about this sort of a sampling frequency issue? Isn't it a continuous signal at the retina? Well, maybe in birds. <laughs> no. <laughs> actually, it probably is in birds. Yeah, you know? I, don't, I don't know. I mean, this is this, this ongoing. So why, why did you say maybe in birds? Oh, that was an, a, an allusion to something you said years ago. Yes, uh, Jim speculated years ago that birds wouldn't have gamma, I think, or something along those lines. Because the because the because they weren't olfactory creatures to begin with. That's right. They're visual creatures, not olfactory creatures. Yeah. But if they evolved from dinosaurs, which probably were, uh, anyway. So I think it's it's obvious you have a broad range of interests outside neuroscience to generally. Um, encompass oscillating systems is the ones that I've encountered anyway. Um, do you want to identify a few of these and maybe say a few words about what sorts of problems you're attracted to and how you find your way to them? Oh, okay. I thought you were going to ask how I find them. I mean, because everything's a problem. I mean, that there's a great book by, um, oh, I can't remember the author's name, but they did... Um, the Stinky Cheese Man and other, if you've had kids, you probably know these guys. But he has this great book called Math Curse. And it's about a kid that everything he looks at is a math problem. You know, he, he goes to school and there's pizza and that means fractions, you know. And, <laughs> and for me, it's the same thing. You know, 
I, I can't read the paper, can't read the paper without thinking of this is some sort of interesting math problem. You at, know, some, right? at some point, you get locked up for that, right? That yeah, right? I know. But <laughs> was there sending letters <laughs> from Montana? So you, you but like fireflies or seashells or or um, among you know any you know all sorts of things. There was an article in 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 New York Times the other day about um, sorry Charlie uh, <laughs> about about um, these bacteria. Um, what, what is the um, what is the, what is the guys that call oh salmonella? Okay, and some of these guys actually go in and they purposely commit suicide in order to induce the immune system, which then slaughters everything, um, collateral damage type thing, including the competing bacteria that they were having trouble competing with, and that gives them an in. And so, you know, you think right away, there's a really interesting problem there mathematically. Um, in any case, um, but let me get back to oscillations, since I think that's a, uh, you're aiming at so fireflies, for example. Uh, you know, how is it that they, um, there's thousands of them in, in, in Malaysia and whole, whole, um, there's some, in fact, there's, there's some problems now because it seems like people have seen fewer and fewer of them because it's being built up in, um, parts of Thailand where you find them. Um, but, but it used to be you could take a boat down in Thailand and see the whole the whole shore light up synchronously. So there's thousands of these little guys, um, Teropthex malucky, um, that flash at about once per second. And and the question, you know, the natural question is how is it that they synchronize? I mean, one of the questions, one of the obvious questions is why do they sync? Why why would they want to synchronize? And one idea is it's kind of a broadcast beam to bring females because it's all males. It's uh, one of the few examples where flashing actually attracts females. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but in any case, uh, did I know? you try this experimentally? <laughs> <laughs> so, so in any case, <laughs> these these guys, uh, I, I I actually think that 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 that's too cooperative, and I think it's more of a kind of if I'm flashing to an attract a female, and I've done a lot of work to get the female near me, and you start to synchronize with me, you haven't had to do any work, and by synchronizing with me, you can confuse her enough that I've done the work and then you have the chance. So that, I think that's a better theory. But that's, but, but the, the why is an issue which I don't want to, I, you know, I, I don't feel competent to comment on. But the how is more interesting, I mean, from my point of view, and, and relates, you know, a lot to neuroscience, uh, because it's a visual signal. And that's going to a motor signal that's producing this output uh, on the little light bulb. And the, the interesting thing is that these guys basically only pay attention to insects that are in a, a small radius, say um, a, a meter or two. And it's not all to all. And they all have slightly different frequencies. And yet they still manage to do this with almost no phase lag. So it, mathematically, I mean, it's a very difficult problem, too, to do a local, to have a local oscillation with local coupling and get global synchrony because you tend to get waves in these situations. And the question is, how do they avoid waves? And 
stuff like that. And one clue was from experiments is that you take a single firefly into a room and pin it down, not, you know, glue it down, and then flash a strobe at it. Uh, we come back to strobes again. Um, and the insect will train it and train with it. And with oscillators, if you go a little bit faster than the oscillator that you want to entrain, that oscillator will lag. And if you go a little slower, it'll lead. Um, and with the fireflies, there'd be the normal lag as it entrained, but over time, that lag would shrink and eventually become almost zero. And so I speculated based on that, that these guys, not only did they try and lock, but they were actually changing the properties of their oscillation to intrinsically um, change. They actually changed the frequency. And it turns out that if you add that additional rule, it's kind of a slow adaptation rule, it makes it much harder to generate waves and much easier to generate synchrony. So, so you want to speculate, speculate about why there's so much oscillatory stuff in biology? Keep us happy. Keep the mathematicians Because uh, <laughs> you've got to keep the mathematicians happy, right? <laughs> no, I, I, you know, it's hard to avoid oscillations because whenever you have one effect, Everything in nature always has this compensatory thing, right? You want to you wanna compensate so you don't overshoot. And there's an awful lot of positive feedback, and but there's also negative feedback, and the negative feedback tends to be slower than the positive feedback. And as soon as you have negative feedback that's slower than positive feedback, you can't avoid oscillations. So it may be all epiphenomena and... On the other hand, I mean, it, it, it's almost like it has to happen. Anytime you have something with positive and something with negative feedback, you have to, almost always have to get oscillations. But, and, and, and then you might as well exploit them. But engineers hate oscillations. Well, I know. I know. Engineers hate lots of things. They, they hate noise, too. Right. Um, <laughs> so a number of years ago... Uh, in the neural network business, I heard someone give a talk about how they were analyzing all possible combinations of neural networks to find the 0.01% that don't naturally oscillate. And then once they identified those, they were actually going to build neural network solutions for various uh, problems based on those that don't oscillate because obviously those are the only ones that you can actually control and you can, et cetera, et cetera. Right? And of course... I stood up in the back of the room and said, uh, that's not how biology works, for example. And one person made the argument that biology can't avoid it, so therefore it learned how to use it. But the question is, are there also advantages to using systems that oscillate? Yeah, I think there are. I think one way is it's a if timing matters, then it's a heck of a lot easier to, I said, hey, it's a heck of a lot easier to move move spikes around if something's oscillating. It's really easy because mathematically you have this intrinsic zero eigenvalue that makes life a lot easier for you. And so it's much easier to move stuff around. If so it's, it's an inertia Fidel. argument? Huh? Fidel. I have a question, right? Um, <laughs> you don't like so, that So, okay, that sounds, I mean, that sounds fine, uh, but how much evidence we have of functional oscillations, right? I mean, the, the, in the cerebellum, there was this discussion for 
a number of years that they, there were a bunch of clocks uh, that will coordinate movement. And I, I think uh, the dust has settled in saying that there is no clock, right? There is no evidence of oscillations in the network, right? So maybe the, 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 but the anatomy will tell you that, uh, that um, actually uh, there will be an oscillation, right? It will suggest, right? Uh, but the evidence shows that there's none. So Charlie? Just, uh, just one real clear example, circadian rhythms in the supercarrier. Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, there's, you want to, But how you want many? I mean, I'm saying that I mean, I know it's not a cerebellum example, but... Yeah, so, uh, I mean, okay, something important. How about the rest? <laughs> but, okay, how about the central pattern generator that generates sure, but respiration? You're giving me the, that's kind of the uh, clear... Okay, so you're um, asking about cognitive maybe yeah, or, that, or something like that. Cause, cause, or more general, right? I mean, you're giving me examples. Sure, the central pattern generator, that's, that, that's exactly the definition. Yeah, because rhythms right? are... I mean, it's obvious that there's lots of places where rhythms are very useful, like mm-hmm. your heart and mm-hmm. right. and and, and um, menstrual cycles and all these other things are very useful. But you, I think you're asking a more specific question about cognitive stuff, right? I mean, I mean, the, the example of Gillerand, uh work on on the. Uh, on the um, honeybee, right? I mean, the extrapolated work that started on the locust and then moved to the honeybee, in which the identification of two other ants uh, decreased as you mess up with the oscillations, right? So that's a, that's a good example. Uh, uh, but I mean, how, that's that's in in, in an what? insect. But how 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 epiphenomenal or how common well, right. I mean, will be you know, useful in the rest of the brain? I don't know. I mean, that's that, that's a question that I've been. You know, I I I keep asking Nancy Capel as well. John um, Lisman gave us really nice examples when he was here who? a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Who did John Lisman of uh, ways that oscillations can be really valuable for in like computational theta? functions in the hippocampus, hippocampus. Yeah, and they really were. They really do have to do with timing. The fact that you, if you have an oscillation. It's the only way that you can know how long something has been. So it does actually circadian rhythm to actually keep time. That's where time, our way of keeping time started. That's why they and call them clocks. That's I why mean, a lot of people clocks. call oscillators clocks. Yeah, I, I, I you know, I, it's a, in, in terms of say learning or memory or things like that, I think it's a hard question whether you know where 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 they're used if they're used. Um, you know, there's as I said um, in answer to somebody's question in my talk, um, there's there's you know speculation that they should be important because there's in, there's sort of indirect evidence of of. Of, for example, things being deficits in the gamma frequency and schizophrenics during certain cognitive tasks, but what the mechanism is that those oscillations are that it co- I mean, if if that's causal or not is not dis- I don't think that's established at all. So, you were you were starting to make an inertial argument, essentially, right? That if you have a system in oscillation, for example. Moving spikes around is quote easier, yeah, because the system already has motion. Yeah, right? yeah, that, yeah. I guess that's a nice way to put an inertial argument. Right, so it's sort of an inertial argument. Um, so that's post post Newtonian. It's post Newtonian. 
but not generally accepted. No, no, but but it is really easy to move spikes around. It, I think when, when you look at computers, I mean, you you can think about sort of buses having clocks, and you can think of the clock. You can also think of what the clock is doing, which is helping to organize communication between different components of the system. Okay, so isn't it isn't it also likely to be the case in the brain? In addition to sort of think, or maybe in addition, or even instead of thinking about very specific functions having to do with things like learning and memory and whatever, you could also look at these oscillations from the point of view of actually coordinating communication between different components. And the fact that the left and right halves of hemispheres are often synchronized too. I mean, yeah, you know, it makes sense to me. So, yeah, but, but if you. If you were talking about it's easy to move spikes around if things are oscillating, that seems way different than the than the idea of, of synchrony, right? Because then you're you. I mean, what's so great to move about spikes around if everybody if if what you want to do is bring them together? So like what it doesn't it doesn't tell you what the 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 functional importance of the bringing together the moving around is. Okay, I'm just trying to think, uh, I'm trying to, there's several pieces to this, okay, because there's the issue of synchronization, okay, and I think that, that that leads to a lot of confusion, because you can have synchrony without any kind of oscillations, right, I mean, if, if, I, um, if I set off a firecracker here, everybody's going to stand up or duck or something like that simultaneously, not me, because I... I like firecrackers, but, but but in any case, um, <laughs> but in any case, um, that's an example of synchrony. But there's no oscillation, and and I guess my point was that, um, for example, if you want to disperse spikes, so if you want to, for example, have neurons firing at different phases during something, which could be useful for, uh, say saliency or find you know if you've got somebody that's active at any given time it might be easier to um to to switch from one one sort of thing i mean this is all very vague but but the point is that if you've got something that's oscillating it's easy to wire it up in such a way that things get spread around um and it's also easy to modulate that in such a way that things get brought together. I mean, that's the whole, there, there's all kinds of intrinsic dynamics and oscillations that you can change on the fly that, that can affect whether they want to synchronize or whether they want to move apart from each other based on both the kinds of coupling and the network topology and the intrinsic ionic conductances. So I, I want to ask a slightly more concrete version of the question. So in a lot of your work, you concentrate on phase resetting curves and on phase changes in a, in a neuron that's oscillating on the basis of some input that's come in. So, and, and one of it, we, we have discussed this previously in, with other speakers in the podcast, and it's an interesting idea that a neuron might signal something not by whether it spikes, but by when it spikes. And so uh, let's imagine that situation and then look at the next neuron downstream. It's maybe used to getting an input from that cell on a regular basis, and now the input comes 10% earlier or 10% later. How is 
that going to signal anything to the next neuron? How, how does it establish an expectation of when the spike should have come so that it can recognize that the spike came at, a, at the wrong time? Oh, okay. Well, maybe neurons don't know anything, but that would shift the timing of that guy that would then be propagated downstream to whatever uses this. So maybe if it's some sort of time difference or something, and these guys are always going together, and now the stimulus comes and shifts this guy and changes the timing of that, that could signal something. So it's right? by comparing two neurons, one that was not shifted. Or, or, or two guys that that um, when they come together, this event happens. But if they get... Sh oh, oh, I can't write on the table. That's right. Okay. Uh, but, yeah, I see. Yeah, yeah. This, this isn't one of the... It's okay. Maybe pounding on the table would give a nice <laughs> rhythm to the way this <laughs> Okay. But, but no, okay. Let me, let, I've lost my train of thought here. But, but all right. Um, it, it's funny you ask that because I, I've been thinking about what... What can you say about the time? What, what does the timing of the output of a neuron tell us about the timing of the perturbing input? Okay? And that turns out to be related to an issue of something called Fisher information. And because there's a one, if you imagine that the, the input is not really strong, then there's a one-to-one -one mapping of output versus input, timing of input and timing of output. You can, you can invert that. But these are noisy things. And so you can ask what, what kinds of, um, what kinds of stimuli or when, when stimuli come tell you most about um, I mean, you, you, you can figure out where things are most sensitive, like a tuning curve of the visual. You know, if you look at tuning curves for orientation, it turns out that the, the peak isn't where things are most sensitive. It's right on those sidebands, okay? And it's the same thing. Um, what's the matter? You know? Oh, yes. Yes. I'm sorry. No. That, was a, so, that was a gesture indicating why did it take people 40 years to understand I don't understand know. That? I mean, because it seems kind of obvious. <laughs> it's absolutely too. obvious. Because <laughs> that's where the slope is biggest. The, but the slope, it's, it's, you know, D whatever it is over DT that matters. It's not the peak. <laughs> but almost all of neuroscience is actually oriented around figuring out peaks, which, by the way, is nothing any engineer would actually build any system around is the peaks. But so, you, so can I conclude at this point that you do like engineers? Because earlier I thought that you were saying that engineers didn't know anything. I don't like anybody. <laughs> I think he also knows. You're on the record. Okay. <laughs> but I no, think everyone, everyone has their, I mean, every, it's, it's a mix, right? Everything has some value. You just got to figure out what's, what's valuable and what isn't. That's all. So, so getting back to, I think, your question, you can imagine a scenario where, where, by shifting the timing of a, a neuron or a group of neurons, then that will shift the next group down and so on and so forth and until there's some out, some behavioral consequence of that. I think, I, I, you know, I kind of... I was of, just thinking, I mean, you started to talk about the issue of how to decode that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and what we would, I mean, the comparable thing for people is an interferometer, 
where the wavelengths, one wavelength gets shifted, and then you have to have one that didn't get shifted. And then so you, you can compare it. Very, very subtle little changes. And I was just wondering, you know, are you thinking of something like I that? I never thought about it like that, but, you know, I think certainly they do, interoral time differences can, can I'm no expert on audition, you you know a lot, I think, don't you? Um, but but I know that, that that sort of works like that. There are these delay lines, right? And or at least that was the old theory. I don't know if it's still the same theory. Um, birds, it's the same, huh? And birds is the same, and it's the same in other. But it's more and bats. In, and more interesting in mammals, actually. With inhibition, is more interesting. And mammals have dendrites too, don't they? More than birds. More, yeah. So in any case, I think you know. Okay, maybe maybe. Uh, I don't. I don't want to jump out and say the brain is an interferometer, but some things like that could matter. I mean, could could make it. It doesn't have to be comparing, but if this guy usually gets two input, needs two inputs to fire, and one and and and, and one is cut off or something, then that could or could change or delay the time he fires. There's lots of possible consequences to that. So one thing about your science over multiple years, it seems to me that a lot of your focus has been on understanding how things happen less than understanding why they happen. That's exactly right. I'm too stupid to understand why. I, I leave that to the likes of Bill Bialik and other people. Um, or alternatively... I'm a, mechan- <laughs> I'm a mechanist guy. Right. So um, he's a mathematician, right? I he is a I, mathematician. it's always in the back of my mind is why. So when if if you sort of as T goes to infinity, okay, at what point do you imagine yourself ever crossing over and or sort of mathematical neuroscience ever crossing over from how to why, or do you think it's simply not an appropriate thing to do oh no i think it's a very appropriate i think it's a very appropriate thing to do and i often think about it but i don't publish on it uh, because it, it, it's really hard to prove whereas a how is is a much easier it's much easier to suggest experiments on how as i just had a conversation with carlos about that uh, um, it's much easier to speculate on how and to come up with models on how and to suggest experiments to test the how than it is, I think, to test the why. So when, when a mathematician say, says it is hard to prove, you mean prove with a positive, a, a capital P or a small p? Uh, okay, let's, well... My my goal, of course, is to prove with a big P because, you know, because being in a math department, we get paid by the theorem. Uh, <laughs> <but> <laughs> you know, a dollar for a coil, a lemma, and, and five dollars for a proposition and stuff. But in any case, um, but by proof, I mean, you know, to to suggest either a model that's a mechanism that can explain with some explanatory and predictive value or or um, or prove via an experiment so as as some of you here know we've we actually had a long debate uh, this summer in a, a listserv um, which a lot of computational neuroscientists around the world 
uh, participate in, which is an interesting debate and actually probably should be compiled and and uh, reference, say, at, you know, UTSA at the website for this department. I'll give so you that. another publication. Yeah, <laughs> she did most of the writing. <laughs> well, <laughs> which part legitimated, le- legitimized the debate in a lot of ways. But one of the issues in that debate, which I think is a core issue, it gets to the how and the why, is, you know, on the assumption that there's sort of this close relationship in the nervous system or in biology between structure and function. One could almost restate what you just said to say we don't know enough yet about the structure to really be able to do hard, you know, sort of interpretations related to the function. Is that I don't know how you got from that step. I don't understand. I think it is the definition of function. He's using the end cause as... He means end cause when he says function. You usually study some kind of formal or material cause. He yeah. wants you to think about the end cause somehow. And is that is that right? Yeah. So I'm just actually trying. But that yeah, that's more of a wide type question. It's a wide. Yeah. So the, it sort of goes. I'm re-asking the question again. I probably shouldn't. But see, my place is called Halville, not Wyville. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that Howellville? <laughs> he said Ginsburg. Yeah. But there's a but there's a whole like there's there's an intermediate uh, version of the why right that that. Well, the physicists asked a lot. He mentioned the question uh, concepts, general concepts like optimality, right? They can well, be been, split yeah. as a as a as a as a why um, that these things happen because they're optimal in some sense that you can formalize and you can do something akin to to mathematics. But there are other possibilities of of whys and something that seems natural in terms of dynamic kinds of issues that are things like structural stability and uh, some of the manipulations of easily changing the topology of the structure of the underlying system that you could ask potentially that those things might be useful in a why that that things are designed in such a way to be stable yet flexible or like minimal wiring or things like yeah i just don't know whether does that i mean do you think that that's one way one place we're headed in terms of mathematics or not there's just all the hardcore mathematicians that don't care about the why well no i don't think i mean i think you know well, it depends on where you are. I, I just ran a, a two-week course at, at um, uh, Institute for Math and its Applications, IMA, Minnesota, and those guys were all, you know, mid-career mathematicians that were looking to get into um, into neuroscience or mathematical neuroscience, and so those guys are not going to probably be thinking about the why issue. They're looking for some interesting math problems to do, and and but but I think you know people that especially uh, people that are coming into the field from from the early stages of their you know starting as graduate students and things like that that, that are really getting immersed in neuroscience and or, or biology. This doesn't necessarily have to be neuroscience; it could be anything in biology. Those kinds of guys are probably much more 
going to start asking these kinds of questions than as old guys. Because um, cause basically I feel like what the sort of things that we've been doing is laying the, 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 the underlying groundwork, the mathematical underpinnings. There's, there's lots of nice mathematics now that's been developed, and we can start to ask these much more, I think, much more difficult questions. Um, but, but maybe less sharply defined mathematically and but i think part of our idea our our job as theorists is to make them sharply defined mm-hmm. so, so may I have one last question and this is the ermintrout legacy question a second one um so we're not i mean we're all math friendly in this room uh pretty much but we're not we're not active mathematicians uh in the sense that we care more about the solutions and the structure of the solution. So my question for you is, over the years you've been doing this since way back when with Jack Cowan, is, I mean, you've been doing a lot of uh, work for us, being neuroscientists, by figuring out how to translate some of our problems into this more formal structure. What impact has your work had back on the people that just worry about the formal structure? In other words, how much of a transference back into math is, this is, you know, five bucks for a theorem, you know. Okay, so you're asking about my my work in particular or specifically, say, mathematical neuroscience in general? Or neuroscience-motivated work? You can answer either question. Okay, well, let me, me, um, in, in the... In the sense of modesty, uh, let me let me say one of the great examples. Well, well, there's a couple of great examples, but one of the best examples is the theory of Evans functions. Okay, theory of Evans functions was developed by John Evans, and the original motivation was to study the stability of the um, traveling wave solutions to um, action potential, like what Hodgkin Huxley fits into Gumo. Okay, and he developed this really powerful formalism that is now used by um, lots of people in dynamical systems. And I would say that, that um, on the other hand, the, the, some of the work that Nancy and I developed on averaging and networks and coupled oscillators is, is now used by lots of other people as well um, who were interested in oscillators, not just from biological, but from laser point, you know, laser oscillators and, and electrical um, grid oscillations and things like that. So, so I think you know that 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 some of the formalism we've developed is and, and, and it's been developed to do these sorts of things is has really had some back impact on on I'd, I'd say more pure mathematics. Thank you for being here, everyone. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Oh, so we're done. I thought it was. Too-